Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, November 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor extends mask requirements and social gathering restrictions to seven new counties, while administrators at the state's only Tier 1 trauma facility express concern over resources. Then the Trump administration is stonewalling the Biden transition team's ability to receive vital intelligence briefings. We hear from the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. Plus, the University of Southern Miss presents the 2020 KBK Glor Children's Book Festival. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Community transmission of the coronavirus continues to rise in Mississippi. Since Friday, the Department of Health has reported nearly 3,000 new cases of COVID-19. The weeks-long trend is also adversely affecting hospital capacity as COVID-related hospitalizations and ICU occupancy are also trending up. Yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves cited the rising numbers as he announced the extension of his executive order to seven new counties. The numbers are up week over week. Uh, the virus is not getting significantly better. In fact, it's getting marginally worse. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of cases that have come uh, after uh, Halloween. Uh, that was two weeks ago now, a little over two weeks ago. Uh, and so we'll be interested to see what the numbers do through the balance and the remaining part of this upcoming week. But last week we had uh, a large number of cases, our worst week since uh, probably late July or early August. Um, that has me concerned. Uh, because it is getting worse, we're going to have to take additional action. The new counties are Hines, Madison, Pontotoc, Tate, Winston, Itawamba, and Montgomery, bringing the total number of counties under the executive order to 22. Residents in those counties are required to wear masks in public and adhere to restrictions on social gatherings. Administrators of Mississippi's only Tier 1 trauma facility are also expressing concern over the rising numbers. Luann Woodward is vice chancellor of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She says hospitals are starting to see the second degree effects of the recent surge in cases. Certainly in the continuing challenge category would be the numbers of new cases that we're seeing across the state. The numbers that have been coming in over these last couple of weeks, um, very much reminiscent of what we were seeing in the July-August time frame. We are seeing numbers of new cases, of course, on the increase, as well as numbers of hospitalizations, and we all know that what follows that are the number of ICU patients, and we're starting to see that as well. So 
that's what is in the challenging category and in the, um, you know, I wish it wasn't true category, but sadly it is. That is where we are. Dr. Alan Jones, Assistant Vice Chancellor for Clinical Affairs at UMMC, says the fall and winter season is always a challenge for hospitals in the greater Jackson area. Jones warns the continued increase of COVID transmission will add a layer of complexity to the health care system. So obviously the volumes of uh, positive test results are up in the state. Seven-day rolling average above 1,000. Um, it's the largest numbers we've seen through the pandemic. Uh, At least as of now for UMC, we have not seen uh, the spike in hospitalizations to the degree that we we did during the first wave. Um, It's possible that we just uh, haven't, it hasn't caught up to us yet. So we're not, we're hopeful that's not the case, but um, it certainly is possible. But it is also true that it, it appears as though the demographic that is being infected now is a little bit different than it was originally. So a little bit of a younger demographic that uh, perhaps is not resulting in as many hospitalizations. All that said, you see the numbers just like I do statewide. Hospitalizations are up. ICU utilization is up. Um, The Jackson metro area runs a pretty tight ship when it comes to hospital beds and uh, ICU beds. This time of year is always a challenge for us. We uh, stay full at UMC. Most of the other area hospitals stay full. And so COVID is just uh, adding a layer of complexity to what we do that um, is, uh, makes our life a little more challenging. While his executive order is targeted to specific counties, Governor Reeves is encouraging all Mississippians to wear masks. He says doing so can make a difference. Just because you are or you are not in these 22 counties does not change what is in the best interest for you and your family. What's in the best interest of you and your family and all Mississippians, if you go out in public, wear a mask. Please wear a mask. We were talking earlier on the call with the vice president. Uh, There was a new study that came out within the last 10 days. That new study for the first time verified that by wearing a mask, you're not only helping protect those around you, you're also helping protect yourself. It helps you. It helps your family. It helps your friends. And I know it isn't fun. I don't like to do it over the course of 2020. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, that none of us really enjoy doing. But it does make a difference. It does have an impact. And so I hope that every one of you... I will continue to um, stay focused, stay in the fight. As the state continues to fight the spread of the coronavirus, new advancements in treatment and vaccination are emerging. Dr. Woodward of UMMC says the last few days have brought good news. There will be in the next few weeks what is being advertised a monoclonal antibody treatment that is going to be made available as well as Um, two vaccines that are noted to be available for distribution before the end of this calendar year. So as of the end of last week, we were expecting one Pfizer vaccine. And then the news broke this morning that there is a second vaccine that they believe will also be available for distribution before the end of the calendar year, perhaps even in the next couple of weeks. We are thinking and a little bit cautiously optimistic, hoping that by mid-December, 
we will have vaccine availability. Reeves is calling the news of two soon-to-be-available vaccines a game-changer. He says he's monitoring the FDA approval process while considering how to prioritize distribution. I'm confident that if it makes it uh, through the process, it will be safe, um, and it will be, uh, it will be something that will truly be a game-changer. But as we identify the priority for the distribution because we know those that are most vulnerable, and particularly healthcare workers and um, EMT uh, providers, our first responders will be some of the very first ones that get priority. Even that's probably not going to happen for a matter of several weeks and maybe even a month or so. And so what we have got to do as a state is we've got to bridge that gap. We've got to get from where we are today. We've got to slow the spread of the virus. We've got to reduce the number of people who are getting sick and therefore going into the hospitals and so we got to take additional precautions Uh, i'm asking for your help i'm asking you to step up and continue and i know it's hard i know we've been working on this together for a very long time but i'm strongly encouraging you to stay in very small groups don't have large crowds try to always wear a mask when in public and particularly when indoors, whether there's a mask mandate in your county or not, and also um, look out for yourself and look out for your neighbor. Mississippi has reported over 134,000 cases of the coronavirus since March 11th, with 3,545 related deaths. Coming up, the Trump administration is stonewalling the Biden transition team's ability to receive vital intelligence briefings. We hear from the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The 2020 general election was two weeks ago, and former Vice President Joe Biden has been projected the winner. Traditionally, the president-elect's transition team would begin working with the outgoing administration to ensure a smooth and peaceful transfer of power. But President Trump is refusing to concede, claiming the election was fraudulent without any substantial evidence. And the White House has been stonewalling the Biden transition team's access to key intelligence briefings. Democrat Benny Thompson represents Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District and chairs the House Homeland Security Committee. He He examines the security of the recent election and explains the procedures needed to protect the homeland during this period of transition. One of the responsibilities we have uh, under Homeland Security and the cyber mission is to look at uh, whether or not there are threats to the homeland uh, in anything we do uh, in the government space. And one of those is our systems of how we elect Uh, our leaders here in the United States. Well, CISA, which is the agency responsible for that, released a statement saying that as far as they're concerned, uh, our elections uh, were fair. They really did not uh, 
identify any significant uh, breaches to our system. And so it really should put all of us at ease that our system of elections uh, in this country, as it related to the November 3rd elections, uh, uh, met the test of accuracy. Here's something that may not put everyone at ease. The Trump administration is not turning over intelligence information to President-elect Joe Biden. What are the ramifications of that? How important is it that he do so? Well, you know, the transition period is very important uh, for any change in administration. Uh, From a historical uh, perspective, you always talk to the next uh, leaders coming into our government to make sure that continuity of government is where it should be, to make sure that any outstanding intelligence or other issues that might need addressing, that you're familiar with them. So the standard procedure uh, in our government has always been uh, transitions historically are orderly, uh, transitions uh, historically are accurate, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, it's the future of our government uh, at risk if we don't. So the the Trump administration, by not sharing that uh, information, puts all of us at risk because the incoming administration uh, potentially would not have uh, information as it relates to potential threats to the homeland. Now, in addition, President Trump has fired Pentagon Chief Mark Esper. Do these moves put the U.S. in any more uh, of a vulnerable position? Well, uh, yes. Uh, It's his prerogative uh, as president to change uh, any of the cabinet officials uh, that he might have. The problem is, uh, at this late juncture, uh, there's no one uh, who would step in uh, that many people feel would not be a political uh, person. The Defense Department historically has been above politics. Our military is there to defend uh, our way of government, and anyone who dares attempt uh, to harm us. Our military is is there. Uh, You can't weaponize the Department of Defense just because you lost an election. And so the people he replaced the secretary with uh, are not uh, what you would call traditional military individuals. Uh, These individuals won't go through Senate confirmation because there's not enough time So we really have been put at risk uh, by having individuals in place who has no accountability uh, to the people or to Congress, for that matter, because of the short time remaining. Here's something else that falls under the purview of the Department of Homeland Security, and that's the coronavirus. Cases are exploding. Deaths are increasing across the country. Uh, There appears to be no response from the White House regarding the surge of cases and death uh, death of uh, numbers in the U.S. So 
what can be done without the support of the administration? What can the Department of Homeland Security do to address this? Well, the unfortunate situation we find ourselves in is there's no leadership in the current executive branch. Uh, From the standpoint of Homeland Security, FEMA has provided significant resources to communities to address it, but we've not had the executive leadership uh, from the standpoint of executing a pandemic plan. We've not had uh, the executive leadership in making sure that communities and institutions are provided what they need to address it. And so the health professionals, for the most part, during this pandemic, uh, they've been ignored. Dr. Fauci is a world-renowned epidemiologist. Uh, He should be listened to. Uh, He served Democrat and Republican administrations uh, uh, in a totally uh, unbiased manner. Uh, But it's clearly uh, in the minds of a lot of people he's been marginalized, and that's unfortunate. And, And the numbers of deaths and infections go up daily, which says that if we don't address this pandemic in a a health-related posture, more people will die. All right, moving on again, what's ahead for the new Congress? You have progressives and you have centrists, and it would appear that never the twain shall meet. Well, you know, this is is government at its best. Uh, I think the test of any democracy is choosing your leaders. Uh, The people have spoken uh, in terms of the president, in terms of uh, the Senate and and, and the House of Representatives. And so after January 20th, uh, it's our job uh, to roll up our sleeves and get together and work. I'm confident at the end of the day this is what will happen. And I'm convinced that President Biden's leadership uh, will be in the forefront of moving this country forward. Now, the notion is that uh, uh, we all have to agree uh, is not where it is, but at some point uh, the art of compromise is how you get things done. Uh, Democrats and Republicans will have to uh, get together, work hard for the common good of the people we represent. And I'm confident that even though you have people on the right the left and in between, that at the end of the day, that's what will occur. Benny Thompson is a Democrat and a congressman who represents the 2nd Congressional District. Thank you, Congressman Thompson. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the University of Southern Mississippi presents the 2020 K.B. Kegler Children's Book Festival. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Emma Walton Hamilton is a best-selling and award-winning author, editor, stage and television writer, producer, performer, and arts educator. Together with her mother, Julie Andrews, she has co-authored over 30 books for children and adults, nine of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list. This week, she's serving as a speaker at the KB Kegler Children's Book Festival, hosted by the University of Southern Mississippi. She shares how her childhood household shaped her own creativity. The household that I grew up in was uh, very creative and artistic. All my, both my parents and both my step parents were in some form of the creative arts, theater, uh, acting, design, directing. And my stepmother was a children's book author. Um, We were a family that had books everywhere, both sides of my family. We were big readers. Um, We still are, all of us. And, uh, it was always a great passion of mine as a young person to read uh, children's books. They were a very formative part of my childhood. And um, and I grew up writing stories. Uh, we traveled a lot, and I often amused myself by reading and then trying to write my own stories. So um, the seeds were planted there early on. My mother and I actually wrote our first story together when I was five um, as a means of uh, bridging the gap between... She and my father, um, who had divorced, and they were looking for a way to make me feel like we were still a family. And that story we later published many, many decades later. What was it called? Um, It's called Simeon's Gift. And, uh, of course, the published version is quite a bit different than the (laughs) the version version? we wrote when I was five. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, the the basic seeds are the same uh, of the idea. And so, um, and then when I, as I grew up and I moved into theater and producing and directing, I... Um, I took over the educational programs at the theater that my husband and I founded, and I was teaching kids and running the young audience programming, and then I had my own children. Um, So storytelling and children were just such a sort of formative piece of my life. Um, And then when my mother was in the 70s, my mother had written two books for middle grade readers. And when she was asked... uh, in the early 90s, what she, whether she might ever consider writing for a picture book audience, uh, she reached out to me because I was a new mom and my son was just a little over a year old, and she asked me for a recommendation, and he was maniacally into trucks, and so I said it would have to be something about trucks. And she said, well, let's try and write something together, and, and that's where it started. And, and that was your series, Dumpy the Dump Truck, right? Correct, yes. Um Emma, when you write a children's book, is it for a specific age range, or have you covered many age ranges? We've we've written for every age range except young adult. So we've written board books for babies, um, picture books, leveled readers, and uh, chapter books, and then middle grade novels. So across multiple (laughs) formats and generations. As a featured speaker at uh, USM's Children's Book Festival. What is your focus? Are you going to talk about being a writer or the or the kids you're writing for? Um, it's a little bit of both, Karen. I'll be talking about, um, essentially, I'll be talking about my own journey uh, as, a, as a writer and as a creative person and how I kind of think of myself as 
uh, a Renaissance woman rather than a, a jack of all trades in terms of writing across different formats and and how that has um, fueled my own uh, passion and advocacy for literacy and getting kids reading and keeping them reading in the digital age. So I'll start by talking about some of my own influences, and then I'll be addressing ways in which I, uh, my own research for a book that I wrote on, on uh, getting kids reading um, has, has taught me what the essential elements are to um, helping kids fall in love with books and, and keeping them hooked. You certainly have your hand in a lot of things, and you're a, a proficient writer and a prolific writer at this point. And I think that the University of Southern Mississippi is lucky to have you. I'm so honored to be there. Thank you, Karen. I feel like I'm in such a great company, and my my fellow speakers are are so esteemed. So I feel extremely honored to be included in the, in the lineup and in the presentation and look forward to the day. Emma Walton Hamilton, thank you so much. The KB Kegler Children's Book Festival continues virtually today. Emma Walton Hamilton is serving as the speaker for the DeGrumman Lecture this afternoon. She and her mother are also developing and co-hosting a new storytime podcast for families, Julie's Library, produced by American Public Media. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.